You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network on the internet, broadcasting from two shipping containers outside Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And we are the ladies of Groundworks, Inc. We design and build gardens in New York City and the surrounding area. And this show aims to bring some culture to horticulture. So today, we have a really special guest with us, Richard Maybe who is hailed as Britain's foremost nature writer. He is the author of the groundbreaking book on foraging in the countryside called Food for Free and the editor of the Oxford Book of Nature Writing. He has also narrated and produced popular BBC television and radio series and written for The Guardian, Granta, and other publications and joined us from his home in England. Now, Richard has a new book called Weeds, in defense of nature's most unloved plants, which was just published this month by Harper Collins. Welcome, Richard. Hello. Hi, Richard. So, Richard, we have wanted to do a show on weeds for a very long time, and we were sort of looking for just the right angle to kind of attack the topic. And when Alice and I saw your book last winter at um, a trade show, I knew that we had to have you on because we loved your fresh perspective on the topic. So we're I'm very really, glad. I, yeah. like, I like talking about it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so um, let's get right into the some stories about these botanical thugs, shall we? So in your book, you review many different writers' definitions of a weed, many of which sort of view them from a human perspective. So tell us how you, Richard, would define the word weed. Well, I, I would never use the word myself to insult a plant. But, um, <laughs> I was afraid you might say I mean, that. We, we, <laughs> weeds, are, weeds are plants that other people don't like. Right. Um, one's own weeds um, are uh, very strange sometimes. I mean, I, in certain parts of the garden that I have, um, I discipline plants. Um, <laughs> and the ones that I remove um, probably wouldn't be the ones that 
would be expected by other gardeners. Um, we've got quite a big and complicated garden here, and one end of it is allowed to develop in exactly the way that it wants to. So no plant um, is discouraged there at all. Um, part of it is going to natural forest. Um, another part is a kind of meadow. Um, but you get to the house, um, the more organization and control there is. Uh-huh. And I have um, one of my favorite bits is a, is a Mediterranean garden where I try and grow species um, that uh, grow along in the Mediterranean climate zone, uh, which Britain is increasingly becoming rather like. Um, we've had three months of drought this, um, uh, this spring, and uh, my garden, that bit of the garden, absolutely Bamped with wonderful lavenders and cistuses, and um, while the rest of the, the countryside was uh, turning like the Kalahari Desert. But the things in that garden, which I regard as weed, um, are very largely the ones that I planted myself, um, which so like the conditions there um, that they get out of hand. And what I, what I want there and it's far from a natural Mediterranean ecosystem, mm. um, is as wide uh, a species mix as I possibly can. Mm. But the euphorbias and the marjoram um, have other ideas, and some increasingly with the hot weather, so is the lavender. So seedlings are, are popping up all over the place of plants that are highly desirable to most gardens, including myself, um, but which I don't want smothering the other species that I want in there. So the subjectivity of this judgment one part is on intrusive plants, I mean, is, is a whole story in a, in a way. So what, what inspired you to write about them? What makes them fascinating to you? Their tenacity? <laughs> okay, well, let, 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 let me switch to, at this point, to other people's definitions of weeds. Right. Um, right. I mean, what I, like, what I like about category that, that most human cultures have um, put into um, it's precisely their cussedness um, I've always admired I mean I got into writing about nature because um, I was blown away by the extent to which when I was uh, working in really quite inhospitable environments um, I would see uh, natural systems uh, bucking the trends actually surviving under the most appalling stresses, adapting, being fleet of foot. And I love this image of, uh, of the natural world, or parts of it anyway, um, as uh, real opportunist survivors. We've certainly, in, in, in the United Kingdom, we've got into a position where we assumed a very parental role towards nature. We assume it's fantastically tender and fragile <laughs> and incapable of surviving without um, our help. Right. Now, I think that's patronizing and arrogant tripe. And the species, which, amongst others, demonstrate the extent to which this is rubbish and is actually an insult to the durability of the natural world, are weeds, because they precisely um, uh, survive where, where we least want them. So even though um, one sees the most 
in situations where humans are at work, um, they are in that sense the very essence of wildness because they refuse to play by our rules. That's what I find that the word wild very interesting because in our in our uh, practice here in New York where we you know build gardens many times. Uh, people are looking for wildness, mm-hmm. and we're trying to create a, a, a kind of unnatural wildness. They want it to look like it's always been there. They want it to be to feel wild. You know, Their people are, are are craving that, Richard. You know, well, in wildness well, is the preservation well, we're, we're, we're of the world. We're trying to do the same here, but yeah. um, there is a sort of philosophical con- contradiction there. Right? Um, cannot yeah. create wildness. Wildness I, is, by definition, is what it creates itself. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that would be my definition. I mean, as soon as it, as soon as it is a, 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 a human system, however artful we are trying to be in saying, you know, we're, we're trying to tease this into the condition of wildness, in fact, it isn't. Um, and no. it is precisely when things happen which you don't want to happen that um, the wild card is thrown into the ring. Right. I, I, I find it really interesting, too, that that you use the word discipline. Um, yes, I, I'm going to use that word. I, I, but that's a very yeah. man-made, you know, it's a philosophical term. So it's, and when you're applying it to a natural system, you know, it's it's like nails on a chalkboard, you know? It's, well, one thinks of well, discipline. Think we should be honest about it. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Yeah, you know, we, oh, absolutely. We're wanting these plants to obey rules which we set for them. Right, absolutely. That is precisely discipline. Right, right. I always use, you know, I always see it used... Um, with regard to children, not so much with plants, but I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you describe in your book um, that weeds are human familiars. They go where we go, and we humans have had a symbiotic relationship with some of them, um, often finding uses for them. Can you give us some examples of that relationship? Uh, yes, um, almost back to the beginning, um, it, it's probably uh, inconceivable that um, humans could have started farming mm-hmm. um, unless there were already, on, on the kind of cusp of that moment, um, plants which were, as it were, offering themselves up. Right. Um, plants which, which enjoyed the uh, disturbance, which transitional um, hunter-gatherers just about to turn into farmers were doing, you know, just building settlements long enough for the uh, the wild plants that they'd gathered to maybe sprout on the on the uh, on their latrines and their dung heaps. Right. Um, so uh, the very beginnings of our relationship with plants in terms of uh, eating them. Yeah. Um, it is with weeds, um, always, plants which intruded into human settlements because we gave them, um, as it were, the uh, an easy ride. Um, but if, 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 you know, right down through history, there have been much more uh, um, obviously practical uh, uses for for weeds. Um, the artichoke is an interesting. From, let me try and think. The uh, um, I mean, one one of my favourite weeds, and uh, we share it because I think we uh, it was one of the very many plants that English settlers took over to the states. Um, is uh, the great um, bosky um, herbaceous weed called burdock. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, burdock. Big floppy leaves, which eighteenth um, century landscape painters adored putting in the foreground. But it also has um, wonderfully. 
sticky burrs, which are the seed heads covered with curled spines. Mm -hmm. And they've evolved these in order that they can stick to passing animal fur mm -hmm. and get distributed. Um, and in the 1940s, um, uh, an, uh, a Swiss inventor um, who'd been pondering ways of making fasteners um, suddenly had one of those uh, revelatory moments um, and began the process of inventing Velcro. Mm -hmm. based very precisely on the engineering of burdock seeds, weedy seeds, which we're using one of the one of the mechanisms that occurs right throughout the plant world of um, equipping um, uh, seeds with hooks in order to get them distributed as far as possible. Right, and and I always think about that. You know, who was the first person to? realize that an artichoke is edible because when you look at that plant it doesn't that look. does not look edible you know and but obviously somebody tried it way back when and that was a brave soul yeah well like i yeah i, I, I i'm sure it, that's not the way it happens though um you're, you're talking about millions of years of experience here right. and one knows that that primates um, are very discriminating foragers, um, mm -hmm. not only for food plants, but um, for antibiotic plants as well. Um, how, they, how they discover this, um, one doesn't know, but I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly a process of trial and error that began long before, before humans, um, right. and we were just kind of carrying it on. And um, the, 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 uh, the cultural transmission of um, information about what was edible and what wasn't edible amongst hunter-gatherers um, was fantastically sophisticated. It must have been, otherwise you know, humans of any sort wouldn't have survived. So it happened long, long before anyone actually had to sort of look at a plant and say, you know, um, can I dare try that or not? I mean, the trials had already been done, mm -hmm. um, and the knowledge was being passed down. Yeah, you, you speak in your book um, that the world was divided into two camps. Uh, the natural world became divided into two camps. Can you elaborate on that? At that turning point, once we became sort of farmers and started cultivating, well, yes, I mean it. It it, it, it doesn't make any sense to talk about weeds existing before human beings started cultivating their crops. Right. right. Um, the word would not have had any meaning. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, at the point at which, I mean, obviously, it wasn't you know a, a single year or a single century, but during the period in which humans moved from being hunter-gatherers through uh, pastoral um, gatherers to actual settled farmers, um, the fact of creating a plot of land on which you decided to grow one crop philosophically, conceptually, then made any plant that intruded in that plot an undesirable, you know, which would later become called a weed. But it was actually more than that, because not only did um, the fact of cultivation create the uh, conceptual idea of a weed as an intruder, but it actually ecologically created the conditions for this whole group of plants, most of which are plants which, in the wild, um, uh, thrive in areas like uh, volcanic scree or very unstable shorelines or floodplains, areas where the soil is in a state of continual disturbance and therefore, uh, you know, long settled um, more temperamental plants aren't able to get a root hold. And uh, uh, as soon as human beings started first in, um, in the cultivated fields by digging them up, um, and later in uh, transport systems and cities and whatever, creating facsimiles of these naturally disturbed areas, then the 
see, you know, the, the plants that thrived in those areas simply moved out into them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also found really interesting. So, so the world. So once we became farmers, you know, we we the concept of weeds was kind of invented by ourselves, but the the weeds of cultivation have survive and continue to survive our powers of eradication and in the book you say that the weeds that weeds as we define them have a powerful tool for survival that tool is their relationship with time can you give us some examples of how weeds use time to their advantage yeah the 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 relationship with time is is one of a multitude of of um devices which Weeds have um, basically what they are. What they are trying to do is to um, mimic, or even get one step ahead of um, the growth processes and structural forms of the crop plants that we want. And so, to the extent to which a plant can, um, let's say, uh, set its own seeds at the same time as the wheat is ripe in which it's growing, um, then it's going to get, has a better chance of being gathered up in the crop and therefore being sown again the next year. Um, they also, uh, as it were, transcend this by um, having immensely long potentials for dormancy. That is, the seeds which fall from weeds don't all germinate in the first year. The majority do, but um, right. there's a kind of uh, logarithmic um, yeah. decline, so that in a hundred years after, um, let's say, a poppy has shed its seeds, you know, maybe 0.2% of the seeds are still germinating. Nobody's actually done an experiment long enough to find out what the limits of, do- limits of dormancy are. But they they're long. They're longer dormant. than we think. <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. longer than we think. Yeah, there were some interesting examples in your book of um, some seeds that were found um, in, some, in some disturbed areas and decades that were buried for decades. And then when, yeah. the, you know, and then when the land... But, but, but there are plenty of, uh, I'm sure there are from the States as well, but certainly uh, over here that there have been um, cases of, uh, let's say, um, archaeological dig from um, Anglo-Saxon sites and Roman sites um, where, as far as one can tell, um, the material that was brought to the surface was authentic. Um, And you're having weeds, uh, I I like to call them weeds, you're having old plants um, uh, uh, germinate, maybe one, two thousand years after the time in which they were shed. Um, it's very, very difficult to verify these things. Of course, sure. you know the the the, um, the the old stories of the of the wheat from mummies' tombs are <laughs> right. now mostly discredited because they believe they were taken in by grave robbers and right. uh, wasn't an example of dormancy. But, but there are a lot of, of, of very convincing um, uh, cases where uh, you know ancient soil has been brought to the surface in what seems to be the first time, and uh, plants have germinated from that soil. Uh, we have to take a break right now. When we come back, I want to I talk a little bit more about this because it's fascinating. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Richard, stay on the line. We're just taking a break, and we'll be right back. Okay, lovely.
never been down south too much I'm gonna tell you a little bit what it's like down there Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Our guest today is Richard Maybe, preeminent nature writer and the author of the new book, Weeds, in defense of nature's most unloved plants. That was actually a song, though. We have to mention the song that we just played called Poke Salad Annie, um, (laughs) which is a very old song. Elvis uh, did a rendition of it, but it was also mentioned in your book, Richard, which we found great. So we wanted to play it for the intermission. (laughs) Richard? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Great, just making sure. Like okay. <laughs> one, one more thing I just wanted to touch on before we go to some further questions is um, there was just an exhibit here in New York called Menahata, and some of that research was actually based on, um, on uh, seeds that were found here in New York in yep. uh, soil samples, and they were able to geologically recreate what the island of Manhattan looked like at the time of Henry Hudson. Um, and, oh. and some of that was based on the seeds. And if you're interested, you can go to org and actually put in addresses in Manhattan, and you can see geologically what the land looked like. And it's based on seeds and animal species that were here on the island at that time. It That's was a wonderful story. Yeah. Um, it's defi- it was uh, definitely the, uh, greener. The, the Second World War in, in Britain uh-huh. um, did much the same thing. Right, right. <laughs> um, but one of the stories I, I tell in my book is that um, a, couple, a few decades before the, the Blitz on London in 1941, um, there'd been a great excavation. Uh, you know, they, they, were, they were digging a, um, an enormous well to, uh, to build a new brewery, and uh, the, uh, the pollen samples and seeds which came up gave a picture of what Britain had been like, what the vegetation of London had been like, um, you know, 20,000 years ago. Wow. Um, and all the species which um, were discovered hundreds of feet underneath the surface of, uh, during that excavation came up um, in, uh-huh. uh, after the Blitz. Um, now, whether they were the, um, the whether they'd come from kind of ancestral relics of the of the ancient flora of a, a London before humans were there, right. or whether they just kind of drifted in from people's gardens, is, yeah. a, is a moot point. But I think you know the dramatic lesson is there that um, uh, you know the, the, there was a vegetation of, of highly adaptable open country plants mm-hmm. um, in earlier times, and um, uh, you know. A, a, any kind of disturbance of the ground can actually bring these back. Yes, it really is archaeology. Right. Well, I have to ask you about, now. I know in your book you mentioned that you have a, you, in some areas of your garden you have a very laissez-faire attitude towards weeding, let's call it. However, there is one plant that you've named Grelda that you really can't live with in the garden. <laughs> tell, us, tell, our, tell our listeners about Grelda. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, um, that, that's my, my partner Polly's wonderful, um, inspired nickname for Ground Elder. You know, a brilliant contraction of, yes. of the two words of that name, which makes it sound like a, like a medieval witch. <laughs> right. um, and, uh, yeah, that, that is trouble if you want to grow, um, let's say, a border of, uh, of decorative perennials. Um, it's okay in the rest of the garden. You know, it, 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 it's fantastically aggressive um, in... Garden borders, but it doesn't survive in in shade. It doesn't survive in meadow conditions. So it re- it really is in in flower borders that it's um it seems to have got its uh, it, it seems to like the particular kind of 
uh, threadiness of root systems that you get there and, and the kind of weeding that, that border gardeners do because uh-huh. um, ground, ground elder grows from tiniest little fragment of cut root. So if you think you're doing a good job weeding with your hoe <laughs> and you're cutting the roots into thousands of pieces and you think you're killing it, in fact, all you're doing is creating a, um, a wonderful nursery for a whole new generation of, of ground elder plants. Yes. Richard, it would be fantastic to work alongside you in the garden. I, 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 that could be a lot of, of fun for an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, I mean, uh, Polly did much. Um, we, I, I describe in the book how, how we got rid of it from the herbaceous bed that we thought we did. I mean, it meant kind of three weeks of digging every single plant up um, and disentangling this, uh, these entrails mm-hmm. of white roots, which were absolutely entwined with the, uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the, the garden perennials roots. Um, right. And you have to just have to take them out by hand and then wash them and replant everything. Um, yeah, that sounded that sounded like an incredible job. I mean, it, it's yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's know. not an unfamiliar. I, I I don't know if you had this plant out with you, um, but it's not an unfamiliar one um, with gardeners in Britain who very often, if they've got a real <laughs> invasion by ground elder, just have to rebuild the garden from scratch. You know, digging down three feet sometimes. Yeah, I was going to say. The place. And just removing, and and just removing, yeah. Well, I have to, I want to talk to you, uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, one of my plant enemies, um, bindweed, which kind of uh, launches us a little bit into sort of the turf wars that you describe in your book are not just between humans and plants, but there are also considerable battles between plant species. Can you talk a little bit about... Bindweed, of course, is, is um, what, what can one make of it? I mean, it is one of the most extraordinarily clever plants on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, you know, I, I think you've got to admire it. Um, uh, some, of the, some of the ways in which bindweed um, copes with people's attempts to get rid of it um, are quite remarkable. It, it, it has five different modes of regeneration, you know, from seed to roots and all kinds of fragments and, and stem nodes in between. Um, it has the capacity to find a source of light through a completely enclosed black maze with just one pinprick of light um, available at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the most extraordinary story I heard about bindweed was that um, if field bindweed, which is kind of lower one, not, not the one that climbs over hedges, it's the, um, the one that is most common in arable fields, but if it gets into, um, let's say, a new, newly planted grass um, grazing field, um, it's learned to recognize the growth hormones in grazing cattle's breath. Um, and saliva, and uh, can actually respond to them. So, um, you know, it's, it's almost when, when the cattle move in, it's, uh, it's giving the, um, the, uh, the weeds a dose of steroids, and they, um, they, they grow twice as fast. Yeah, so it really has a symbiotic relationship then. In well, no, it's not really a symbiotic relationship because the, uh, well, I suppose it is in a way because the, 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 the cattle eat it, though I don't think they like it very much. Um, <laughs> right, right. Um, because it's it's got this kind of latex in it, but uh-huh. um, I, I think they'll 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 graze off the very young shoots. Um, but that's that's enough to make it uh, respond in two ways. Firstly, it it starts spreading sideways and and sending up 
multiple new growth nodes over a much bigger area. And as I said, it, uh, it's, uh, it uses the, um, the growth hormones actually as a stimulant for its own growth. Mm-hmm. That's so, so astounding. It, you know, um, yeah, it's trouble in the garden, but I suppose the point I'm making in, in my book is that as soon as you start to think about how weeds behave, why they're there, it may not stop you actually getting rid of them entirely, but I think it will say, well, these are very interesting plants. Can we reach reach a modus vivendi with them rather than spending enormous amounts of energy and colossal amounts of money on on, uh, carbon-heavy herbicides? Mm -hmm. Um, Can we we work out a way of of finding a corner for them? And and also, I I, I suppose the main point, I mean, I may be kind of jumping too far ahead for you here, but I mean, um, is is we need to take responsibility for them. Um, They're not they don't come into our fields and our gardens in a kind of arbitrary way. They, they don't kind of drop from heaven. They're there because of what we do. Um, and I think as soon as we realize that and say, okay, um, I've caused you, you know, you're almost one of our crop plants, um, I think our, relation, our relationship with them has to change. It may still be, it, it will still be necessary to remove them, but I think um, in a more kindly way. That, that's really, really f- fascinating, which, which leads me to my next uh, question. Richard, you, you just mentioned a phrase, you said trouble in the garden, which uh, brings me to think about your chapter titled Not Grass, Weed as Parable. You seem to be making an argument that man's turn to agriculture from hunter-gathering led to a monotheistic religion, and that's a really strong statement. And I think a lot about Eden and the apple and, you know, how man has, has from the beginning, really tempted nature and, and, and taunted it. So where do weeds figure into that story as far as monotheism? Okay, I, I don't think I actually say that. I, I, I was slightly surprised by your... No, that's um, me saying, and I, and I that's me saying Eden. And, and what I really say is, is that the turn from ag- turn from hunter-gathering to agriculture, to being in charge of nature rather than, as it were, being at being a sort of kind of servant and follower of it, mm-hmm. um, led to uh, human-type gods replacing nature gods. Mm-hmm. I think monotheism oh, okay, right. um, is, is something quite different and, and was a very, very particular outcome of the experience of the early Jewish people. Um, right. But yeah, um, where do weeds figure in, in the story? I mean, no doubt um, uh, Genesis's um, account of uh, humans' fall um, uh, it, it, it makes clear that we not only that the, the two things were a punishment. Firstly, actually having to do farming itself was a punishment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the, the sweat of the brow and all that stuff. But also the weeds that accompanied you and were created by the farming were a punishment. So you got it whichever way you, you went. Um, there was no escape, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that, that that was the kind of ultimate punishment. Um, if you if you <laughs> if you farmed um, weed free, you were getting punished. If you farmed with weeds you were getting punished right, um, right. but I think I think um, to the extent to which one one can kind of look at these early creation myths of an anthropologist um, it, it, it's clear that that, um, that that learning that you could conjure plants you wanted out of the soil had a dramatic effect upon humans view of themselves 
and their relationship to the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's very easy to perhaps understand that at that point, the powerful nature gods were replaced by, by um, powerful gods. Yeah. human gods. Right. Um, and um, as for weeds, um, they, uh, they, they were there. Um, what's, what's very interesting to me is that the, the Genesis story um, was still being quoted by farm workers um, where I live in, in a quite remote part of the uh, eastern part of, uh, of British Isles. Um, up to 100 years ago, um, they were accepting that, that weeds were an entirely inevitable consequence um, of the fact of their tilling the soil and the fact of, of what their ancestors had done uh, in the Garden of Eden. And they thought there was no way uh, of ever getting rid of them. One just kind of lived with them. Um, and uh, that, that is a, that's a, uh, if, if, if just momentarily you discount the um, religious angle of that, um, that's a very sensible kind of ecological yes. position. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's that one I think we've lost. Um, the inquisitiveness or, or um, curiosity about where weeds fit in the scheme of things and why they're there. We now just uh, react to them the, with, a, with a knee jerk, with a reflex, rather than actually thinking about what they are and where, they, where they've come from. Mm -hmm. you, um, there's always the, the phrase, you know, as described by Thoreau, as a, a weed is a plant whose virtues have not yet been discovered, which is what uh, we um, uh, it was not, or it was Emerson. Emerson? Oh, okay. Yeah, Emerson. Emerson made that was that uh, man who said whose virtues had not yet been discovered. Okay, Emerson. Um, yeah, it's a, but um, it's it, it, it's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, and then especially in in comparison to Thomas Culpepper's um, herbal, and you know that that caused such a stir among physicians of the time wasn't that filled with local weeds <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah um, that, that's one of the reasons it um it uh, was uh, caused such a stir because mm -hmm. um what Karl Pepper was doing I mean a lot of the book is complete nonsense and astrological spells <laughs> yeah. and all kinds of things right but um, at, at its root, at, at, at the very heart of the book, um, was a was a kind of political attitude towards weeds, which um, and, and towards healing as well, which mm -hmm. said these mustn't be the preserve of the rich and the the secretive, um, but should be available to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and prior to to Culpepper, um, uh, the uh, the only people who could actually um, write about and dispense. Uh, plant medicines were members of the College of Physicians, and uh, they were, they were, it was almost kind of a Masonic society, very close <laughs> yeah. and very jealous of people's intrusions. And they, the last thing they wanted was a kind of democratic attitude to healing. Mm -hmm. And that's what Culpepper did. He, and and uh, he said, you know, it's, it's everybody's right to, to the masses, right? Well, so his, his book was very cheap. Um, it was filled with um, uh, with weeds that almost everybody could uh, could actually get their hands on. Um, you know, the fact that a lot of them may not have worked as well as he thought uh, was another matter. But right. uh, he, he actually pioneered, he, he kind of broke down the, uh, the, the sort of arrogance of the medical establishment at the time. Well, he was, I guess it was kind of one of the first self-help books, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So let's talk about your work uh, with Kew, the Royal Botanic Gardens. 
And uh, what, what role have they played in the expansion of European power and also the expansion of certain favorite weeds, such as rhododendrons? Yeah, I was surprised to read that rhododendrons were considered um, weedy, let's put it that way, in England. Is that, uh, we, we love them here. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, the, uh, uh, sort of to, to, you know, to, to, come, to come to why rhododendrons are, are here, um, Q was... Um, uh, was a great kind of um, control center for organizing um, the British Empire's um, the botanical resources throughout throughout the globe. Um, it moved plants about so that, uh, that there were new plantations for um, British colonists mm-hmm. to grow. Most mm-hmm. so particularly, um, it moved quinine about because right. it was impossible for uh, European settlers to survive in, in the tropics, in the tropics um, right. without something to counter malaria. malaria. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Q's role as a, 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 a kind of um, international Medicare um, thing for, for European settlers was absolutely paramount. But um, it, it was a patent, it was a, a role played by most of the botanic gardens in, in, uh, in Europe. Um, they were the, um, the, the nerve centers for um, the plants which um, Europeans uh, exported and then grew in their colonies. Um, you know, we, often, we, we, we kind of think of colonialism as, uh, as uh, you know, battles between, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the indigenous peoples and, uh, you know, the foreign invaders. Um, but when those battles were over, what really fixed the um, colonialists in their position was completely changing the vegetation of the country they had invaded, um, replacing it with their own vegetation um, and the growing it in, in plantations. Um, so, uh, you know, Q, Q was a, a very, very powerful agent in this, um, in you know, what, what one of your own ecologists has called uh, um, ecological imperialism. Um, now, the rhododendron um, was a, a kind of movement the other way, because as well as uh, I'm part of this movement uh, of porting uh, European crop plants into other parts of the world, of course, we were taking plants, healing yes. um, them quite often from other plants, other right. parts of the world. Like rubber and rhododendrons were um, one of the plants that the successive directors of Kew, the hookers, brought back um, from uh, the Himalayas, particularly, um, and they became fantastically popular plants in um, British gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, but they very soon escaped, and um, what's happened is that. Uh, a, a hybrid which is quite unknown in nature. This was only discovered by DNA research in, in the last kind of couple of years because everyone thought that the, um, the rhododendron that was um, starting to spread really, really aggressively through uh, the wet western parts of Britain um, was the simple thing rhododendron pontica. Um, but it isn't. Um, it's now known to be a very, very complicated hybrid between some of the cultiv- cultivated varieties. And that may be the reason why it is so aggressive, because it has that thing that botanists call hybrid vigor. Um, and anyway, it, it, it may be a surprise to you, but I mean, in, in, in parts of uh, the, the woodlands of Western Britain, um, which are sometimes called the Celtic rainforest, um, they're lovely, lovely uh, damp Atlantic woods draped with lichens, um, mm-hmm. chiefly on oaks. 
um, rhododendron adores that sort of climate and um, it's remorselessly um, invading those oak woods and um, has become you know quite monocultural in places right. um, and even I who uh, you know don't don't like to write any plant or think that um, rhododendron there is a bit of a menace right right well yeah it sounds like it's the kudzu of the south here in the states yes (laughs) so um we kind of have to wrap it up i wish we could continue to talk some more um i kind of wanted to just end um with uh, a quote um from your book that i found especially um poignant you say um and i quote uh weeds um You say that the poppy is a motif throughout your book for as a type, they are mobile, prolific, and genetically diverse. And I quote, they are unfussy about where they live, adapt quickly to environmental stress, use multiple strategies for getting their own way. It is curious that it took so long for us to realize that the species they most resemble is us. And I thought that was a good way to uh, sort of end our show. And we thank you, Richard, for, for being with us. Um, buy the book. It's an excellent read. Um, I learned so much, and we hope to have you on um, next time. All right. Thank, thank, thank you, you Richard. Thank you for having Thank me. you. You've been listening to the Heritage Radio Network and We Dig Plants. Um, thanks to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street, Street in uh, Bushwick, Brooklyn. Our show is produced um, by Jack Inslee and engineered by Jack Inslee as well. Please join us on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants. We'd love to get your feedback on our show. And also, we'd like to hear stories about your battles with weeds. Happy gardening. Happy gardening.